1: You're listening to the Live, Love, Engage podcast. On today's show, how the stigma and shame of addiction are killing productivity in the workplace. Stay tuned. I am Gloria Grace Rand, founder of The Love Method and author of the number one Amazon bestseller, Live, Love, Engage, how to stop doubting yourself and start being yourself. In this podcast, we share practical advice from a spiritual perspective on how to live fully, love deeply, and engage authentically, so you can create a life and business with more impact, influence, and income. Welcome to Live, Love, Engage. Namaste and... Welcome to this live edition of Live, Love, Engage. We're coming to you live as we do on Wednesdays on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And I also want to welcome those of you who are listening to this uh, recording on your favorite podcast platform. And I am delighted to have a guest with us today, and I'm going to bring her on right now. Um, She is doing some amazing work in the world, and her name is... Dana Golden. So welcome to Live, Love, Engage, Dana.
0: Thank you, Gloria. I'm happy to be here.
1: I'm glad to have you. And I'm going to share with our audience um, just what you're up to in the world. And uh, she is, first and foremost, a co-author of a book called Addiction Rescue, The No BS Guide to Recovery and a nationally known advocate for families struggling with substance abuse disorder. And it's her passion to bring hope healing and inspiration to those families. She's also a certified family addiction coach, a certified recovery coach, and public speaker. And um, I'm curious to know what actually, I mean, I've, I, I know because I've done some research on you, but for you to share with our <laughs> listeners and our audience out there today, um, what, what actually got you into this type of work? Because it's not something that... Um, you know, I think you, you definitely have to have a, a passion for it and, and it probably may be even a, um, a personal reason possibly why um, you're, you're doing this type of work. So I wonder if you would share with us um, yeah, how you became a certified family addiction coach and recovery coach.
0: Yeah, most of us working in the addiction space have a story. And, um, and I have a story as well. So uh, my story is I grew up in a home with addiction and uh, my dad had process addictions, um, a little different than substance use or alcohol uh, use disorder. Um, uh, we consider process addictions, things like gambling, sex, work. Um, uh, gaming, uh, anything that you can get your hands on that's not ingesting a substance. So uh, and obviously people get addicted to processes as well. So uh, from there, I went on to uh, seeking relationships where emulated those dynamics. And so I had boyfriends that um, ended up uh, being uh, some kind of addict. And um, that led me to um, Al-Anon and resources for uh, living with an addict and how uh, I play a part in that. So I learned um, about that. Then I got married to a man that was in recovery. So he had gone through um, treatment for his um a substance abuse disorder. He was a cocaine addict. And during our marriage, he relapsed when he was um, had knee surgery and prescribed uh, opioids for pain, as painkillers. And he relapsed. And that led to uh, gambling and heroin. And it landed him in prison, unfortunately, because of his addiction. I had divorced him much before that time. But when he was in prison, I told him that he should really start writing down some stories because we could help people. We were both at that point in recovery. He had gotten clean and sober before he went to prison, not wanting to detox in prison. And so when he came out, we co-authored the book that you had mentioned, Addiction Rescue, The No BS Guide to Recovery. And we, he made it his mission coming out of uh, prison that he had disappointed everybody in his life and he was going to find his redemption. He was going to make everybody in his life proud. So since that time, he's become an interventionist and a recovery coach. And I uh, worked with him in his business and I became a certified addiction. family addiction coach and recovery coach, uh, we're both also, uh, interventionists. So, uh, we do travel the country, uh, helping families get their loved ones into treatment. Um, when there is a substance or alcohol use disorder. So that's how I came about this line of work because I was ingrained in it. And I knew I could help other people from my path of recovery and restoring relationships and my sanity and health, mental health. And, um, and so we've uh, partnered up. Our marriage didn't last, but we've partnered up to help other families.
1: Mm. Well, I appreciate the work you're doing because I, I grew up with um, substance abuse. My dad was an alcoholic, and and it's it's not fun having having to deal with that. And so I appreciate especially that you're helping families because it's uh, it's not just the person who's involved. I mean, it really does affect everyone. Um, and and I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, I mean, about the impact that substance abuse has, you know, on on the rest of the family.
0: Yeah, and it is huge. And so I actually have a quiz on my website, um, and I'm going to just tell you what that is right now. It's danagolden.com backslash quiz. And what that quiz is, there's six established family roles around addiction, and everybody takes on a maladaptive role when there's an addict in the household. Um, one of those six family roles is the addict um, but there's the hero the caretaker the mascot the lost child so everybody has this maladaptive role in how they deal with the loved one that has a, a, a using disorder um, we you know we tend to tiptoe around we don't want to talk about it we might be the enabler um, helping them um, to sneak their their drug of choice because we want to be their advocate we might be the one that's Um, you know, so mad and opposed that we just step out of the relationship. We don't want anything to do with it. So each one of these roles is maladaptive according to how you relate to your um, loved one with a a using disorder. Um, And it really does affect the whole family. And that's why family addiction coaching is so important. When we get a loved one to go to treatment we have that time that they're away to help the family understand their role in it because if their loved one comes back to that same family dynamic after their stay at treatment, it's just a recipe for disaster because nobody's learned this new language, this new way of speaking. They've been immersed in recovery and now they come home to a family that's not. So we try to get those family members in recovery during that time so when they come back, they can be the best support system in helping them stay in a sober, clean life.
1: Mm. yeah I, it, and just in in going over my family history, it's like I wish we we had done something like that because it, it it would have perhaps helped a little bit better um, it, just all around because I know even then I know my sister and brother I think dealt with substance abuse and, and in a way I did because I've dealt with food that was my drug of choice and that I've had to <laughs> deal with um, you know, and still and still. Um, Well, now I'm more aware of when I do reach for food as truly as like comfort. And Mm -hmm. and then I, I'm able to then say, okay, that's enough now. (laughs) But uh, food is another one of those
0: process addictions. It's not mood altering, but mood altering, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I know. I put the, the introduction on, or when I was promoting this on, on social media, it was talking about um, the, the stigma and shame of addiction and that how that affects people in the workplace. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, cause it, cause there is, there is, I guess, there is this stigma about it, about it, isn't there? Maybe let's start with that first.
0: Yes. Unfortunately uh, there is, it is changing um, the language is changing. We try not to use addiction and clean time and uh, there came up dirty on a UA. Like we try to change that language a little bit. It's just substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder um, and try to, you know, it's so mainstream. It touches everybody. If you, if you aren't Addicted to something, you know, somebody that is. And I just say to be on this planet is to be addicted to something, you know, whether it's food or work or working out or we all overindulge in something can be ice cream, caffeine, nicotine. Right. Yeah. I try to normalize it a little bit. And I think that's what the world is trying to do by trying to change that stigma and shame. Now, when we talk about it in the workplace, um, there's just a lot involved. So if you're someone suffering from an addiction and you're in the workplace, there's a lot of fears around that, fears that your peers are going to find out, that your boss is going to find out, you're going to lose your job. So it's very uh, something that you want to keep within. On the flip side of that, in the workplace, there's so many people dealing with a loved one at home that's dealing with an addiction, whether it's a child or a spouse. So you can imagine um, an addict in this space that it takes up in their head because, you know, their only focus is their next fix. Well, somebody that's dealing with a loved one at home, their only focus is getting their loved one better and finding them help because they never know if that next phone call they get, or when they go home, are they going to find their loved one dead? I mean, that's the biggest fear surrounding this. So billions of dollars are lost every year because of, um, productivity lost in the workplace each year. And that's just people can't show up to work because they're so consumed with an addiction or they're hungover. So they're not working to full capacity or they're in their heads, not being able to be as productive as possible because they're just worried about someone at home that's dealing with a substance use disorder. So there's just a lot going on in the workplace that we're trying to um, get the word out there. So many employers have um, EAPs where they have resources for their employees to get help, behavioral, mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people don't even know that their employer has to have those programs. So it's really important to find out the services that your employer offers, uh, what kind of behavioral and mental health resources they have for them and to openly be able to have conversations because the worst thing is when you're holding all this inside and you can't go to your co worker you can't go to your employers. There just needs to be more of an open dialogue around the fact that so many people are suffering from this and it just got so much worse during COVID.
1: Yeah. And I can see though that I, f- I feel like this really needs to start at the top though and, and that like, you know, the head of the company, they really need to be able to let people know that it is safe because i can imagine if i'm an employee and you know even just just i'm just like hearing like stories of like my husband's with with dealing with hr and and things like that that uh you know in his workplace it just seems like sometimes i would think people might be afraid to even you know talk to someone in hr about this so it it seems like it needs to come you know from the top down and, and starting you know with the culture and letting people know that it is you know, we do want you to get help. We want you to be healthy. And, and, and so we do have these resources available. Is, Agreed. Yeah. Is, and is that what you, do you do that? Do you like go in and like talk to companies and, and talk to?
0: Abs- absolutely. Absolutely. It's so important as soon as an employee is hired, that they understand their benefits. If there's monthly newsletters at the workplace, if there's monthly meetings or weekly, whatever, it's those things. If anything changes in your coverage, you need to bring it up, be able to talk about it, that open dialogue. It should be out there all the time. So people are reminded that, hey, we have these resources for you. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, What what has the... um let me ask you this: What's the biggest misconception, maybe, that people have about, um, maybe, about addiction, or 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 something that that you like to be able to go out there and, and change?
0: Well, I I think it's just the um, the the level that it's at in in our country, just mm-hmm. that it affects so many people. When when we go into interventions. Um, the family starts telling us about their loved one that's addicted, right? And they don't understand. It's the same story. It's a just a different place, a different person. But it's it just affects everybody on such a, in such a similar way. And they're all on a similar path. And we're trying to disrupt that path. So, um, you know, I just try to normalize it as much as possible. You know, I try to, it's such a serious subject. But it's like, let's lighten it. You know, it happens to everybody. It's not, you're not terminally unique. Which people feel, you know, this is only happening in my family, only my kid, only my spouse.
1: Yeah, right.
0: It's just not that way. It's just it's happening everywhere in every demographic, every socio and economic uh, demographic, age rate. We it happens. You know, I do interventions on twenty year old kids, and I do them on sixty year old you know, retired adults. So it's mm-hmm. just, it's the gamut. And we're all in it together and we're all trying to heal together. And there's a huge community of it and there's tons of resources and there's just another way to live. You don't have to keep living the way you're living. And that goes for the addict and the family members. And so just to providing that hope, that's thats the biggest mystique I try to bust is that there's mm-hmm. always hope and there's always hope and we yeah. can get you on that path.
1: And... and- and it is amazing when you, when you talk about that, there are, it's all, there's so many different types of addiction because I mean, of course, what's been in the news, I guess in the last few years has been, um, uh, you know, with the, um, uh, what's the word controlled narcotics. Um, I'm not using the right terminology, but, but, you know, like painkillers. Um, yeah. Yeah. Controlled substances, but there's, you know, still alcohol, there's still drugs. Uh, I mean, I had someone on the podcast, I think last year who was talking about the dangers of marijuana in that because marijuana today is not the marijuana that it was of like my youth back in the seventies, it's a lot stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I, I do appreciate that you're talking about the fact that there's hope because there is so much of it and that it really does touch so many of our lives. And so it's time to just, acknowledge that and, and be able to do something about it and just start being more proactive. Um,
0: you know, I want to touch on something you just said, Gloria, because I have this conversation all the time about okay. how much drugs have changed in this day and age. And mm-hmm. the and I hate to say the killer, but the killer is fentanyl. And mm-hmm. back in the seventies, when you and I were growing up, you know, it was okay to experiment, right? It, it yeah. was something that we, it was expected almost. And now um, it is it is a death sentence. It is playing Russian roulette, buying street drugs now with the fentanyl that's out there. And I raised my kids and, and had conversations with them when they were in school age kids. Ten years fast forward to today, it'd be a completely different conversation that I would have with my kids today because there wasn't fentanyl in your day and even in my kids' day, and now um, it's like you can't even experiment. You don't have the luxury of going off to college and trying this with some of your college friends. It could be death. So that's just talk about the marijuana being different and marijuana is getting laced now with uh, fentanyl as well. It's in every drug out there. So a great documentary about that is called dead on arrival. So if anybody doesn't understand the potency and what fentanyl is doing in our country, uh, it's a great documentary, dead on arrival.
1: Well, I tell you, it, it, when I first heard that they were using fentanyl as a street drug, it just blew me away because my sister had stage 4 cancer and was using fentanyl patches because she was in pain. She would have not have been able to get through the day without it, and to think that it's like they're using this now as like a recreational drug is just like crazy. It just seemed totally bizarre to me because, you know, she had to have it in order to just get through the day. And it's like yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's crazy, but um, let, let's let's I want to lighten it up a little bit in that, and just asking you, um, you know, in doing this work, what what is um, what is the um, I don't want to say exactly the uh, you know what gets you excited, but I guess what what really um, why do you keep doing it? There, that that'll be yeah. Why do you keep doing this work? Because you because you you clearly probably get something out of it. So so why? Yeah,
0: do you- I, I just think that um when you help a fa- there's a lot of things going on in my head, but when you help a family find hope that's been struggling and and uh you know just at their wits end and they don't know where to go, where to turn to, and to have resources for them and have some of their answers, it's just so comforting and to see the light bulbs go off in their head. You know, like, wow, I never looked at it that way. I never thought of it that way. And just help them find compassion and empathy. And, you know, the thing that um, I tell all my families is nobody uses because they want to be using. People use because they're in pain. And there's so much underlying that addiction. And they're just so mad, you know, that they have no control over it and their loved ones, you know, ruining their life or whatever it is that they don't understand what this person's going through. And when you can get to the root of the problem and the trauma, the PS, uh, PTSD, whatever is underlying um, the use, and there's just light bulbs that go off that they understand Mm -hmm. that there's a reason, not that, you know, there's ever a good excuse to use, but, um, but there's reasons and their loved ones in pain and to help them find the resources they need to get out of that pain. And then to have people, you know, touch base with you a year after you've gotten their loved one in treatment and just say, you know, they're doing great. Our family's doing great. You know, we're so grateful um, that you came along. Um, it's just very, very rewarding. I mean, I, I, we're literally saving lives every time I do an intervention. And believe me, it's intense and it's stressful. Hmm. But when you can save a life and I fly someone to treatment and drop them off, knowing they're in good hands and they're a safe place and their families for sometimes the first time in years can get a good night's rest knowing their loved ones in a safe place. I mean, it's just its just there's just something really bad. Grat- I'm very grateful that I get to do that and, and help families be that person in their life.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. Um, what if, the, if someone is, you know, going through this and, and they're, they're looking to, uh, let's say they come for the, for the first time and they're, they're, you know, seeking, seeking guidance. What do you, um, how do you, kind of start out what is like the first sort of things that maybe you say to people to be able to help them Um, you know let's say it is like a family member that you're coming that's coming to you
0: well the first thing I help them understand is that they have to learn to separate the person that they love from the addiction that's taken over Mm -hmm. because they're two separate entities and the person that you love is still in there there's always hope to get them back um, however, this disease of addiction has taken over and they're doing things and saying things and acting in ways that they wouldn't normally do without the influence of drugs or alcohol or processes in some case. So, so helping them understand that they can be mad at the disease, but they can still love their loved one at the same time. It's, I always say it's like having kids. You know, you love your kids, but when they're being naughty, you don't love their behavior. It's the same thing with addiction. And then the... the one of the first modules I would say when I go through with the family, when I'm coaching them is understanding their loved one's addiction because people don't understand why they just can't stop. You know, they they feel like I can stop. I can have a drink and not go on all night. Why can't they? And just coming to understand the power um, of the disease of addiction, um, how it's mentally and physically and emotionally Um addictive, they become dependent on it in those areas, and they can't just quit. It's not a matter of their moral character or um, how much self-will and willpower they have. And the disease of addiction has nothing to do with that. So just helping helping them understand about the disease of addiction and, the, and a lot of light bulbs go off. It's very helpful for them. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I think that's part of where, I guess, maybe some of the stigma has come because some people still are like, oh, you know, it's not a disease. Why do they call, you know, like alcoholism a disease or something like that? Yeah, they should be able to stop. But um what, what do you say to people like that who who are still um, you know, convinced <laughs> that, yeah, that it's I not a get disease. into that
0: argument is it a disease, okay. is not a disease. I call it a disease because It needs attention. It needs medical attention like any other disease. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's not an argument I ever want to take on. It doesn't matter. The Mm -hmm. fact is, is that when you um, when you have a problem um, and you're dependent on it, the brain needs it on a daily basis Mm -hmm. and it needs more and more. And it um and it craves it more and more and you can't just stop. So whether it's a disease or not a disease, they've got this going on in their head. And it's a it's a terrible loop that gets coded in the brain, just like a computer. And until you stop that loop and you change the coding in the brain, they will continue to crave it, which is why you cannot just, you know, put the plug in the jug and think mm-hmm. all is well. It just doesn't work that way.
1: Yeah, that's true. And and it really is, really is mind over matter. And and I'll just share, I mean, because again, I've, I've been, uh, like I said, food is something that has been my my area. And so last week, I was not eating as healthy as I would like. And so then I started switched over. And Sunday, I started, you know, doing better again. But yesterday, last night, I was out shopping, and I'd had a wonderful dinner was full. And yet I'm like, my mind was like, go get some ice cream. And I'm like, I'm full. Stop it. This is like ridiculous. It's like, what is going on that I'm feeling this way? And it was very, it was, you know, luckily I was able to, I finally was like, no, you're tired and you're full. You're going to go home and you're going to be fine. And, and then I was, and I was much better this morning, but it's, but it's the power of the mind. It's, it's just, it can be really annoying sometimes (laughs) I would say, you know, for, for my sake, and, and this is just a minor thing, but someone, you know, who is going through, you know, more serious, um, you know, uh, addictions where they're really dealing with like a substance abuse, like, you know, something that is really changes the chemistry of the brain itself. I think that's where it gets to be um, much more challenging to help people. Is that what you found?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I want to speak to what you're saying, because it is a mindful practice on a daily basis, right? Anytime you're trying to change a habit, and and stay in the focus of that new habit. um, You know, I say people meditate, they have a meditation practice, you have a yoga practice, you know, doctors have a doctor practice, right? It's something you have to practice on a daily basis. Um, and recovery is the same way. It's something you have to be mindful about. You have to pay attention to those triggers and ask yourself those questions. Why I'm full. I don't need it. Why am I going through this right now? Yeah. do If I don't have it, I'm going to be fine. If I do have it, I'll probably just be mad. Like just have those conversations and exactly. figure it out with yourself. And that, and that's what it is. It's a mindful practice on a daily basis. And in our book addiction rescue, um, we talk about all those kinds of things, the aftercare, what it takes to stay in recovery. And it's, healing body, mind, and spirit and paying attention to all three of those things. Cause when you're functioning on all cylinders like that, it's a whole lot easier to stay in the presence and uh, on your path.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely, I know meditation is one practice that I do every day. And, and I know if, On the rare occasions when I miss it, I miss it (laughs) during the day. So I make sure that I do that first thing in the morning to to get my day started off right. So I like how that you guys do talk about, you know, some type of mindful practice to be able to help people. Um, What are you curious about right now?
0: Oh, what am I curious? When are the numbers going to come down? Hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we saw them exponentially go up through COVID. Um, we haven't seen really, uh, them coming down. Um, and so, so that would be one thing is to see those numbers coming down, like that we're making a dent and people are getting it and getting into recovery. And the other thing is getting recovery the first time around, because right now the average time, I think it's like five times, um, of relapse, getting back on the program, relapse, getting back on the program. Why is that number so high? Why aren't people getting it? the first time around. So, um, those are the things I pay attention to and I would like to see changed.
1: Wow. That's, um, surprising and not surprising at the same time that it's five times, but that is interesting. And I I would love to, yeah, I share that curiosity and wonder how the heck we can get that down. So that, yeah, I
0: I do want to say that treatment centers now, the 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 model's changing and more and more are, Doing dual diagnosis co occurring. So addiction and mental health. And I think that's really important because there's always a mental health component when it comes with addiction. So to treat both at the same time and not just the addiction is, it, I do think it's going to make a difference in the long run. I don't know that we're doing it a whole lot yet, but that's really prevalent now that these, um, that is all dual diagnosis, and they're paying attention to both sides of that. Mm.
1: No, that yeah, that that makes sense, and and because I know that um, you know I'm sure like with my dad, you know he was in World War II, and and he also dealt with a uh, family addictions as well. So whatever was causing him to do that had to have been something that either either maybe growing up during the depression as well, you know, what he went through, what his family went through. And so, yeah, to have been able to get that kind of support. I love that they're doing that now. I think that's going to, that is going to make a big difference. Um, Is there anything else that I haven't asked you about that I should, or any other last point that you'd like to make
0: today? I guess nothing comes to mind. I think that uh, we covered the gamut of hope and healing for families and their loved ones that have a using disorder. Um, And I guess I just want to reiterate that there is always hope. There's always a chance of change. And we're out there trying to change lives on a daily basis. So, um, yeah, that's my message.
1: Well, good. Well, it's it's a very good one. And I'm glad you are doing that. And if someone wants to be able to learn more about you and about the work that you're doing, what's the best places for them to find out about you?
0: Well, um, my website for my family coaching is uh, danagolden.com. I'll reiterate that danagolden.com backslash quiz is where you can take a quiz to find out uh what role you take on in a in a family that where someone overindulges in something. Um, and then there's another website, the Life Recovery Coach, and that's the uh, website that where I work with my ex-husband. Um, that's more about our interventions, coaching services for the for the addict, um, public speaking engagements, uh, those other areas that we work in. Um, both websites you can book in a call. Uh, happy, you know, we do pro bono work. We, I mean, we're we're just we're not in it for the money, we're in it for the healing. So um, you know, if you have a question, if you want some direction, if you want even just free resources, uh we can guide you to all those places. We have a network of treatment centers that we work with around the country. Where we're preferred providers for interventions, and um, and we uh, know a lot of great facilities are doing a lot of great work, um, and we're just happy to guide anybody and give them some resources, and uh, you know, obviously, um, do interventions. uh, That's you know a big part of what we do, uh, because uh, oftentimes uh, it just needs a big disruptor, and that's Mm -hmm. what an intervention is. It's where everybody comes together and shares with their loved one how much they're loved and cared for, and we really want you to get the help you need. So, um, and then the coaching goes on from there. So happy to um, guide you, direct you, um, send you on a path to uh, healing and recovery if you're dealing with someone that's uh, got an addiction issue.
1: Hmm. And, you know, I, I should have asked you this earlier, but because you just mentioned that, you know, that you're working with your ex-husband. So, and I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are going like, Okay. How does that even work? (laughs) So, so how is it that, that you're able to now be able to, um, you know, have, have a professional relationship, I guess, that uh, the personal one maybe didn't work out, but the professional is.
0: Yeah. I think it it goes back to what I said, like you still love the person. You just don't love the disease. You know, I had always said that if it weren't for his, um, you know, behaviors uh, when he relapsed, I'd probably still be married to him. I just needed to separate myself Plus, I had two small children at the time and I needed to protect my daughters um, from you know, the train that he was on. So, uh, you know, divorce was the option. But once he was clean and sober, um, you know, that bridge, had, we had crossed that bridge and or that ship had sailed, whatever you want to say about the relationship. But, you know, we knew we had uh, good uh, work we could do together. We'd, you know, overcome a lot to be able to be friendly and work together. And we can help other people do that, too. You know, you still have a person in there that you loved at one time. You got to go back and find the qualities that you once saw um, as long as they have, uh, you know, their behaviors in check. Um, There's no reason you can't repair those relationships and they might look different, but it still works.
1: And I think that's that's a good point as well for, for Again, reinforcing this idea of hope is that you know you can still have a relationship with someone. and may it may turn into a different type of relationship, but as long as yeah they are still in recovery and and doing well, you can forge a, a way to be able to be stay in communication with them and have it be uh, something that works for both of you. So I'm glad yeah, that they can do that,
0: and for the kids too. So yeah, important. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm so appreciative of you my being pleasure. here. And uh, and I know you've uh, helped a lot of people today just by uh, sharing your story and sharing the message. And I wish you continue good work and, and, and helping a lot of people out there.
0: Thank you so much. And thanks for having me and letting me share my story and message. I really appreciate the opportunity. Mm-hmm.
1: You're welcome. And I thank all of you for watching and for listening. And if you got some value out of this one in particular, I encourage you to share this with a, with a friend. If you know someone who is going through, um, you know, addiction or or someone who may have a family member or something, um, do share this information with them. And, and I will have the links to, uh, Dana's websites and that quiz. I will have that in the show notes as well. So you can get there. And, um, Uh, Yeah, so until next time, as always, I encourage you to go out and live fully, love deeply, and engage authentically. Did you know that a majority of entrepreneurs tend to discount the importance of their work? And a good number feel their success is simply due to luck. I know from personal experience that self-doubt can keep you from having the kind of life and business you desire. That's why I've created a free guide called Uniquely You, How to Move from Self-Doubt to Self-Love in Four Simple Steps. To claim your free guide, go to liveloveengage.gift. That's liveloveengage.gift.